This week on Life and Faith. John Howard, as Prime Minister after the Port Arthur massacre, communicated that these people had not died in vain and therefore there was going to be what was radical gun um, reform, certainly radical for John Howard's base. I regard his courage in seeing that reform through as a pastoral act. It's infringing on the concept of human identity. We underestimate the positive impact we can bring to other people's lives. There were just so many of them that I couldn't ignore it. I was surprised they were surprised. It was surprised. Welcome back to Life and Faith. I'm Simon Smart. We've had a bit of a break for a few weeks. And I'm Justine Toe. Now, it is election season in Australia, and the candidates are out in force, I'm sure you'll have noticed, but when they're out and about making the case for why they should be Prime Minister, sometimes they don't get the reception they're after. I've got a tough question. Are you up for it? No, I'm, I'm absolutely up for it. OK, and, so uh, and Sorry, we can't really do that. The protocol, the media alliance will be a bit upset if we... I don't think the media will mind at all. I've, I said, are you up for it? Are you up for it? I'm absolutely up okay, for it. Okay, so my yeah. question is... No, we're, we're, we're just taking questions from journalists. This is what you said when you got elected last time. Mm. We're going to help all those people that worked all their lives, yeah. paid their taxes, yeah. and those that have a go will yeah. get a go. Correct. Well, I've had a go, mate. Yeah. I've worked all my life right. okay. and paid my taxes. So just that was Scott Morrison, confronted by a disability pensioner and a bit hard to hear, but that was also Anthony Albanese dodging a grilling from a voter. Now, both candidates have come with their prepared comments, but they don't want to deviate from the script, and I think that's understandable. I think I've done that as well sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, today we're going to be talking about an important but not often discussed aspect of political leadership. The fact that being the leader of a nation also means, at times, being a pastor to it. So it's though you're not only electing a leader, but the person who will comfort you and provide a sense of leadership during difficult times. Yes, we talked to people in the know about this. So former Premier of New South Wales, Mike Baird, also Erin Wilson, Professor of Politics and Religion at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, and CPX fellow Tim Costello. All of these are Life and Faith alumni. It's good to have them back. And they have some fascinating things to contribute to this topic. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning that it's not at all unusual for a country's leader to be seen as some kind of pastor or maybe a, a comforter in chief or a mourner in chief, let's say. Uh, there's a couple of US presidents who've had to play that role in recent times during tragedies in the US. Hillary and I are profoundly shocked and saddened by the tragedy today in Littleton. Our nation is shocked and saddened by the news of the shootings at Virginia Tech today. We send our thoughts and prayers to all at the Navy Yard who have been touched by this tragedy. Laura and I and many across our nation are praying for the victims and their families. To the people of the community of Littleton, I can only say tonight that the prayers of the American people are with you. I know there's not a parent in America who doesn't feel the same overwhelming grief that I do. We don't know all the hows or whys of this tragedy. Perhaps we may never fully understand it. St. Paul reminds us that we all see things in this life through a glass darkly. 
I asked Erin Wilson about this. What's going on in that moment when, in the aftermath of a disaster, the president might quote from the Bible, like Clinton did, or might use religious language in a way that assumes that it will be broadly understood? Here's what she had to say. In the 19th century, nationalism really emerged and this idea of the nation state, and it took over a lot of the the structures and the symbolism and the rituals that had, for the most part, been the purview of, of religion. And so in the context of a nation state that is heavily uh, imbued with sort of religious symbolism and narratives like the United States, although a lot of countries have these kinds of symbolism, let's be clear about that, the leader of a country takes on this almost sort of priestly role in the context of the national community. People look to a political leader to, to comfort them, to offer guidance, to offer leadership, to reflect on and make sense of why things have happened. Um, and you see them playing this kind of leadership or priestly role in relation to other rituals, for example, so like apologies that get offered to Indigenous communities for past grievances or, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah, so even though there is a quotation, let's say, of the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're assuming that everyone's Christian, but it's almost as though this is a shared language um, that we can make sense of it. Uh, is that what we understand by this term civil religion that um, I've seen appear? Yeah, so that's uh, that's a term that was first developed by uh, Robert Bella. The US is not a Christian country, and I know there'll be a lot of people who hear that and kind of go, are you kidding me? It's not a Christian country. But there was a very particular and explicit effort by the founding fathers to make this a theistic rather than Christian, explicitly Christian or, or particular kind of religious sort of sentiment. And a lot of the so-called founding fathers were, were not religious at all and were also in some respects atheistic. So this is not something that was um, a unified idea at the very beginning by any stretch of the imagination. So you will find that a lot of American presidents, they very rarely will refer to to Jesus explicitly, they will more refer to God and God is an idea that transcends different religious traditions. So it makes it more accessible. There is this very closely entangled link between the US sense of national identity and this sense of serving a higher purpose um, and pursuing a broader destiny. So the 19th century expansionism in the United States was referred to as manifest destiny. So this idea of the United States as a chosen nation. Um, Conrad Cherry uh, published a collection of uh, speeches called God's New Israel. So looking at the United States of America as this new kind of promised land. And it's taken on that persona in relation to things like democracy, justice, human rights, equality, even though in terms of its own record on things like slavery and the rights of African-Americans and the rights of Native Americans, it is less than exemplary, shall we say. Now let's bring Reverend Costello in here, Justine. He's had close encounters with plenty of political leaders in his time. We started by asking him, how do you explain to someone what a pastor does? Well, a pastor, sometimes called a priest, is the person who feels the pain, gives hope in tragic situations, uh, literally puts their arm around, very different to the prophet who declares what's wrong, very different to the king who uh, makes the executive orders. The pastor is empathetic, providing that sense of love and compassion and embrace. It's quite a pastoral, literally, image, isn't it, right? They talk about the sheep and the shepherd. Do those um, range of associations also 
impact how you understand the pastor's role? Yeah, absolutely. I think the word pastoral, um, which is an agricultural uh, image, is the shepherd who protects the sheep from danger, the, the shepherd who feeds the sheep or leads them to where the waters are because they need uh, refreshment or the green pasture. So that pastoral word uh, is really embedded in what a pastor does. Is there, Tim, an element of guidance too, as well as comfort? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Good pastors, though, don't stand up uh, and say, I have the truth and if you listen to me, you'll understand it. They wait till the questions emerge and then they do guide. But it comes out of deep listening and deep, you know, respect for you so that it's not a king, a CEO telling you what you should be doing, that sort of guidance. It's alongside guidance, not top-down guidance. Do you agree that the leader of a nation takes on something of this pastoral role? Absolutely, particularly in secular times when most people don't have a priest or a pastor. In times of crisis, in times of anxiety and fear, um, that mode of shifting from being the king in biblical terms (laughs) and the executive decision maker to being the carer, the protector, the reassurer is a mode, not always uh, possible for leaders, but at certain times very necessary for leaders to, uh, to engage in. Have you seen some quite powerful examples of that when a political leader has adopted that pastoral tone or has, has struck a pastoral note in the way that they've addressed people? Yeah, I think uh, John Howard as Prime Minister after the Port Arthur massacre communicated that these people had not died in vain and therefore there was going to be what was radical gun um, reform, certainly radical for John Howard's base, and they were very angry at him. I regard his courage in seeing that reform through as a pastoral act. He was saying... No parent should have the fear that there are so many guns out there, they're going to lose a child. And I think that was really reassuring for the nation. Um, I was in Geneva when Kevin Rudd did the um, apology to the uh, Stolen Generations. And it was the UN building. Ambassadors and high-ranking UN officials stopped because it was being broadcast live. And just the tone and the depth of uh, sincerity in that speech from Prime Minister Rudd so moved many people in the UN. I saw ambassadors weeping in tears, and they were foreign ambassadors. And that struck me as an extraordinarily pastoral moment. It probably had a little bit of the prophet in it too, saying we will face up to our evil, the prophet's name. We need to repent. Uh, But... As a pastoral gesture, um, I just saw how secular UN officials were deeply, deeply moved. The final one, I think, was when uh, Sir William Dean was the uh, Governor General and there was uh, Australians lost in a whitewater uh, kayaking uh, tragedy in Switzerland. And uh, he went over and he stood with some of the grieving parents and uh, they dropped wattle into the ravine where these people had died. I was very moved watching that. Um, He had his arm around the parents. Um, His tone was just perfect in terms of 
compassion, empathy, pastoral care. So he wasn't um, a politician, but he was the head of state, and that was very moving for so much of the nation. Now, when this pastoral element or function is missing, people really notice it. Scott Morrison's ill-timed family trip to Hawaii during the Black Summer bushfires, for instance, has haunted him ever since. They know that, uh, you know, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I don't sit in the control room. If you hear the broader context of Scott Morrison's comments, you see he doesn't just drop the line callously. He acknowledges that people need to know he's around in a crisis, but on that occasion, things didn't play out well for him. Here's Tim Costello. Some um, might name our Prime Minister in the bushfires wanting to be pastoral and to reach out to survivors where others did not want to shake his hand. And it didn't look good. Uh, and I'm sure his motivations were absolutely pure, but that sense that you weren't here, mate, and now you want to comfort me, uh, just misread the pastoral moment. to Life and Faith, and we're talking about the politician as pastor, the mourner-in-chief or comforter-in-chief role that's part of the office of president and, yes, prime ministers and premiers too. Now, what people seem to be looking for at a time of crisis is empathy, leaders who connect with people where they're at. Now, during Mike Baird's time as Premier of New South Wales, he was thrust into the drama of the Lint Cafe siege, where a lone gunman took 18 people hostage in the middle of Sydney. Tory Johnson, who worked at the cafe, and Katrina Dawson, a customer there that day, died in the conflict, as well as the gunman. Now, I remember, Justine, leaving my office that afternoon and walking down York Street, and I'd never seen anything like it. It was a total ghost town. Everyone was getting out of the city. Now, Mike Baird was Premier then, and he was involved not, of course, just during the day, but well into the night. So I asked him what was happening for him that day. We got to about midnight and, um, you know, was told, look, it's stabilised, and, um, you know, we suggest you go and get a couple of hours sleep. The plan was to put my head down uh, on the pillow about 1am, so I got a hotel in the, in the city and uh, to be back at 4am. I remember putting my head on the pillow and I saw 107 and um, almost exactly an hour later, the, the phone called from the on-ground uh, commander that said uh, that we had a person down and, um, you know, shots had been fired and uh, I needed to come in. So, you know, I jumped up, uh, headed down to the car, came across and you know, was confronted with the, the sad reality of the loss of Tori and Katrina. And, you know, in the hotel room, I'll never forget it, where uh, the complete stillness was broken by the sirens of the ambulances that were heading towards Martin Place. And, you know, I didn't know what scene was there, but uh, I knew it wasn't good. What did you describe the way people reacted to you as the leader once it was all over. There was this tragedy and loss in a city in real shock. How did people respond to you? Did you just get a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, there's, there's no script or textbook on, on how do you deal with situations like this. And, you know, having to come to that press conference in the morning to tell the city and the country and, you know, almost the world that um, we lost lives and the tragedy of that and, uh, I knew how I personally felt. I felt this deep, deep sadness and desperation and um, 
such a loss, you know, of beautiful lives just going about their day-to-day, lost in such tragic circumstances. And, you know, from that moment, there was a sense, I think, where I wanted to speak, you know, for the community. I wanted to speak to the community and convey that sense of desperation and our concern for the families and our concern for the hostages and, and to really try and get that sense that, like, this actually isn't the time for anger or hate. It's a time for kind of love and unity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have no idea, you know, where that came from or why, you know, that was where, you know, not just myself but the commissioner as well uh, focused on. Um, and, you know, in that context, I had many people come up to me as I interacted and often was going down to Martin Place because people were placing the flowers there. There, there seemed to be that there was some resonance with that thinking and I think that people felt my pain and that kind of resonated, connected to their pain and they felt some form of comfort in that, I think. Mm. And people would come up and just talk to me and, you know, some would just hug me in, you know, around Martin Place saying, you know, thank you and just smile at me. And and, and I think they were trying to encourage, I, I think they were trying to encourage me as I was trying to encourage and support them. You know, there was, there was always this mutuality about it that was actually quite powerful. Tell me about, you You met a group of young Muslim men in that moment who wanted to take some action. That seemed like a really significant story in this. Yeah, well, I, I think, um, you know, the context that, you know, we, we engaged with the Muslim leaders um, during this process because we knew that there could be significant challenges potentially to their community. And... Um, they were wonderful, you know, in their support. And, you know, they really wanted to show Sydney and Australia that this wasn't behaviour in any way that they condoned, the exact opposite. And um, I, one particular moment was when the group of young Muslim leaders, I'd, I'd met with the Muslim community regularly, and there was a group of young leaders and they reached out and they wanted to come and put the flowers down at Martin Place, but there was a sense of fear that they had. So... I said, no, you shouldn't be fearful. You know, please come and do it. And I went with them. And as we walked, you know, through the, the barricades and towards a place where we could all put the flowers in, and there was about half a dozen of them, the crowd almost parted and they individually kind of went to these young Muslim leaders. And, and again, they hugged them, they patted them on the back, they said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I just remember that just that constantly, thank you, thank you, this heartfelt sense. And as we stood there and put the flowers down, they, this young leader said to me, I have never felt uh, more part of this country than I do right now. And it's quite a remarkable moment, you know, as I reflect back on it, because at a time where the Muslim community could have been under most siege, it was actually almost the opposite. It was being embraced. And there's a real power that the individual human devastation and circumstances, you know, of, of the loss had brought everyone together. And, and that, that unity in such a way was powerfully shown and symbolically shown, you know, by those young Muslim leaders. I always sort of admire them and their courage and bravery. And I hope that they're you know, as I reflect back, that coming forward that day was very significant for them, because I think it was very significant for many others. That was former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird reflecting on the Lint Cafe siege. I also asked Tim whether political leaders were, in some senses, 
the dads of the national family and whether people wanted to know, especially in times of crisis, that dad was there, he was in charge and that he was going to look after it. I think the leader of nations often is that. I I remember my daughter in teenage years being very reassured by John Howard. She said, he's just like my grandfather. I thought, yep, she is a young person who is looking up to the leader, the Prime Minister, and feeling a bond of protection and trust uh, that was paternal. Now, when we say standing in for dad, we need to say that political leaders are often women and we don't want to just be paternal. Uh, But I do think paternal images, you know, a knife edge, there can be the authoritarian, patriarchal, I protect you and I know what's best for you, as opposed to the um, paternal or maternal, I am enduring this with you and I feel what you're feeling and we're going to get through this together. I loved it when Jacinta Ardern, to use a female leader, was at the height of COVID in New Zealand, was uh, before the vaccine in terror. And a journalist asked her, are you afraid, Prime Minister? And she paused. And then she said, no, but we have a plan. I think that was the right pastoral reassurance at that moment because no one knew if we are going to find a vaccine. No one knew what was going to happen. Was it going to decimate us all? And I thought that was a very good pastoral moment. So here's a glimpse of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in comforter-in-chief mode as she hosted a Facebook Live Q&A from her couch on the eve of lockdown back in 2020. Um, Evening, everyone. That I would jump online um, quickly and just check in with everyone, really, uh, as we all prepare to hunker down for a few weeks. Excuse the casual um, uh, attire. Um, it can be a messy business putting toddlers to bed, so I'm not in my work clothes, so forgive me for that. I do just want to prepare um, everyone. Because of the lag with COVID-19, the time from someone having contact with someone who has it, catching it themselves, them being symptomatic and being tested and positive, is a number of days before all of that happens. So we won't see the positive benefits of all of the effort you all are about to put in for self-isolation for quite a number of days, I'd say at least 10 days. So don't be disheartened. Our numbers are going to go up. And the modeling I've seen suggests that they will go up quite considerably. We'll see quite a steep rise. In fact, I'm expecting we may see several thousand cases over a period of time until we then will start to, we hope, see the effects of what we're doing with self-isolation having um, a positive impact. So don't be disheartened when you see that ongoing increase because of that lag. All of the efforts that we're putting in should eventually show if we all follow the rules. Um, Till then, do check in on your neighbours. Do especially check on on those who may be elderly. Give them a call. See what their needs are. Go out and grab their essentials and pop them on the front door for them. Just remembering the way we can keep them safe is by keeping our distance. Remember, stay at home. Break the chain. Uh, and you'll save lives.
Now, if you've seen this, you'll know Jacinda Ardern is broadcasting from her home. She's wearing sweats. She's just put her toddler to bed. This is a very different kind of comforter-in-chief moment. She's trying to relieve the fears of people, explain what's happening, and rally them behind a common cause. Basically, you feel safe with her, that she's there and she cares. Now, last July, the Lowy Institute poll found that Jacinda Ardern was the political leader most trusted by Australians. Kind of shocking, isn't it? A, yeah. a little bit, although we, you know, any New Zealander that we like, we like to claim as our own. <laughs> Justine also asked Erin Wilson about what was the secret of Ardern's success. I would say in terms of the way she carries herself in her role as Prime Minister, she endeavours to be very inclusive She endeavours to acknowledge the different perspectives that exist, but overall she has this very clear message of who we are as a, as a nation. So the national identity. And so she always talks about, uh, New Zealanders and she always refers to we or us. So she's always including herself in her discussion of who we are as New Zealanders. And, and I think that makes her very relatable for people. And that's also like in times of, of crisis, that's what people are looking for is someone who is relatable, is personable, who understands what's going on in their situation, who doesn't try to moralise or, or, you know, make the best of it, but just someone who shows compassion and acknowledges the grief and the trauma that people are going through. Also, I think with a leader, and, and this is also something that Jacinda Ardern has done very well, is then seen to be doing something to address that crisis and respond to it the immediate aftermath of it, but then putting um, measures in place to ensure that it doesn't happen again in the future. And she's done that extremely well, I think, with the, the Christchurch massacre and also with COVID. She's been very clear on the kinds of measures and very, very fast as well to respond to both of these incidences. Australians have plenty of reason to feel we're lurching from one crisis to the next. Bushfires, floods, pandemics, more floods... What do they need most pastorally from their leaders in times of crisis? Here's Mike Baird to round out the episode. I think people individually feel the pain and the loss and the, and the circumstances and they don't know what to feel or how to feel or what to say. And I think the hope is that the leaders at the time actually put into words you know, what they want to say. We look to our leaders and we hope that they can provide the kind. They can give us some assurance and they can say the right things and actions um, to those who are in deep pain. And then, you know, we ourselves, you know, the anxiety is lifted or we we feel, you know, more at ease um, because any event like that obviously creates deep anxiety. You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe. Thanks to Tim Costello, Mike Baird, and Aaron Wilson for speaking to us about this topic. I'll post some links to things that they've done with us in the past. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with someone else. It helps spread the word about life and faith. And of course, get out and vote. Next time. Contempt is profoundly different from disagreement and even anger. Contempt is the rolling of the eyes, the dismissal of the other. When you hold me in contempt, you're saying to me, your opinion is not worthy. You're saying to me, you are not worthy. You're saying to me, it wouldn't matter, it would be a better thing if you simply weren't here.